Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Meadow Actions Expert Series. I am delighted to finally have our conversation on the, our, our Mito cocktail, and we have our expert with us, uh, Ted. Ted is uh, coming to us from Acton Pharmacy. They are a wonderful partner with Mito Action. They've been with us pretty much since the beginning. And Ted has presented before with us on the uh, Mito cocktail, and we thought it would be great to have a conversation back and forth um, regarding what's new in the cocktail, why you take the cocktail, all of the questions that we get asked on a regular basis here at Mito Action. And so if you do have any questions, please go ahead and put those in the chat and I will be able to ask those directly. And then when we're done, we're going to compile all of this and put it out on our expert series link on our website. So in a few days, you'll be able to go back out, look at all of the questions and answers. And then if you have anything else that comes up, just let us know. So thanks, Ted, for joining us today. I know you've been super busy with everything going on in the pharmaceutical world right now. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk with everybody. Um, why don't you just give everybody a little background on, on yourself and, and your level of expertise and how you got into compounding pharmacy? Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure as always to be involved with Mito Action. You guys do wonderful work and I'm, I'm glad to be able to be a part of this. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I graduated from WPI uh, with an undergrad degree in biochemistry. Uh, from there, I started working at pharmacy and I, I liked it and uh, want to learn more. So I started working here at Acton to learn compounding and, and um, uh, applied to pharmacy school, which I eventually did. Graduated uh, from Mass College of Pharmacy in Boston um, in 2011. Um, was working a little bit for a mail order and then came back working at Acton and uh, doing and running the compounding lab here at Acton uh, since then, about 2000, since 2013. But I've been involved with Acton Pharmacy since 2005 now, and a very, very long time working with Saad and, and everybody here, which is it's wonderful. Um, getting a chance to see everything grow and, and develop and everything working with you guys too. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. I mean, there's not much to, uh, uh, to it, um, luckily. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I think the first question everybody has on top of mind always is what is a compounding pharmacy and why, or what is the difference between having your cocktail compounded or not compounded? So um, what a compounding pharmacy is, is that we make medication from scratch here on site. It's not something that is made by a drug company. Um, we're under the purview of the Board of Pharmacy. We don't have um, like an FDA approval for a particular drug and it's crafted individually for a patient based on a prescription from a doctor. So it's not something that's like batch made or, or bulk made for a whole bunch of individuals. So that, that's the difference between compounding versus manufacturing. Um, Compounding pharmacies are able to meet patient needs where uh, normal pharmacies um, may not be able to, or normal pharmaceuticals, I should say. Uh, regular pharmacies like a, a chain store or anything like that, they, they don't do the compounding for the majority. It's a very specialized field where you have like, extra accreditations, special environmental controls, you know, special you know, equipment, product protective equipment for us and for you. Um, so we do a lot, uh, it's a lot more uh, involved and invested into the training, et cetera. Um, the, uh, mito cocktail, um, depending again, whether it's like a liquid powder or capsule, 
is a combination of the different ingredients that the doctors feel is necessary for an individual patient based on the metabolic profile uh, compiled all together into one prescription. Sometimes that's for ease of administration. Sometimes it's because it's the only way to get those specific doses. For example, CoQ10 um, comes uh, over the counter as I believe 50, 100, 200, and 400 milligram capsules. What if you need 275? You know, it's not an easy way of getting that dose in there. What if you need a small dose of 25 milligrams? And not everybody needs the same doses. And that's where compounding pharmacies are able to step in and actually make specific doses that are not able to be met by either prescription or over-the-counter supplements. Um, most mito patients, if, even if they took a bunch of over-the-counter supplements, you know, like a C, E, B complex, CoQ10, creatine, um, and you took those as individual medications, they might still not be the exact tailored dose uh, from what you're looking for. Um, so that's where that's where the difference is. I mean, by all means, it can be it can be something that can be gotten from commercial products, over the counter products, um, but not not in every instance. The other difference is that we source our chemicals from FDA approved wholesalers. Uh, while the medication that we make is not FDA approved, where we source it from and where our wholesalers purchase it from our FDA approved facilities, there's a chain of custody of the medication. Um, there's a certificate of analysis that gets looked at by the pharmacy to make sure that it meets certain quality standards. We accept or reject medications based on those standards. Um, so it's, uh, uh, there's important factors that go into it. And you know, not every not every compounding pharmacy is the same. Not every accreditation is the same. Depends on if they're PCAB accredited, not PCAB accredited. There's differences that um, that are going to uh, revolve around that as well. Uh, most compounding pharmacies, if they have specific training, they have additional resources, et cetera. They're usually PCAB accredited because that's the way that things are going down the down the road for insurances and a few other a few other reasons. But um, you know, that's that's basically in a nutshell about what compounding is and um, and the difference between the over-the-counter supplementation. Paul, thank you for giving us that, that great uh, dissertation on that because I had no idea and I'm a mito mom and we've always been using a different compounding pharmacy for our uh, cocktail and supplements, but I didn't realize the exact differences. And especially when you said you use FDA approved products for a non-FDA approved uh, recipe, so to speak. So I thought that was very interesting how you definitely make sure everything is put together to the best possible standards. We have some questions popping in already. Um, Jonathan wants to know, can we have a brief description of what the cocktail is and if there are specific mitochondrial disorders that the cocktail might not work for? Um, so the cocktail is a combination of different vitamins and cofactors um, that are determined based on individual metabolic profiles. Um, whether, whether two people can have the same meta, uh, metabolic profile, they may or may not have the same exact prescription for their compound because the individual's biochemistry is still different. Um, we've had situations where we have twins and both twins have the same genetic disorder, but they're on two different doses is they respond differently. Um, we've had individuals with the same, same diagnosis, but different cocktails, again, because their individual biochemistry is, is unique. There's no magic bullet or, or perfect cocktail that would work for everybody under a certain disorder. There are certain supplements that work in general across the board. 
CoQ10, vitamin E, uh, N-acetylcysteine, B vitamins. We we know as uh, new information has been um, uh, been released by uh, by by publications. Uh, the most recent being in 2020. There was another one in 2018. Um, obviously, the first big one that was done by um, uh, Harik et al. in 2006 or seven uh, was kind of the after was the, the beginning part of the uh, putting things together for um, cocktails and for doctors to have some sort of basis for prescribing. But now the newer ones are kind of honing in based on more um, uh, uh, evidence based on their, their individual practices uh, and what we've seen for benefits on small study scales. Uh, for example, creatine, uh, car uh, carnitine uh, was prescribed to nearly every mitral patient uh, because we know that it produces energy uh, through the fatty, uh, fatty acid metabolism. However, unless there's a primary carnitine deficiency, what they're seeing is actually negative effects, um, atherosclerotic effects, cardiac issues um, uh, with high doses of uh, carnitine now. So that's been removed from a recommendation for patients unless they have a primary carnitine deficiency. And that is not necessarily linked to one individual type of mitochondrial disorder and the amount of levocarnitine isn't linked with it either. It de uh, depends on the individual. So what are the most essential components in the mitococktail right now? So um, antioxidants are the pretty much the primary staple, whether you're looking at alpha-lipoic acid, CoQ10, N-acetylcysteine. CoQ10 is the most prominent one, mostly because it's also used in the electron transport chain uh, for ATP synthesis. Um, alpha-lipoic acid acts as an antioxidant across liver cells and also helps replenish uh, CoQ10 and vitamin E. Um, N-acetylcysteine is a great antioxidant. It works on its own as well as repleting glutathione, which is the body's primary source of antioxidants, or it's its primary antioxidant, I should say, as a source. Um, so, uh, a lot of patients have difficulty producing glutathione, so replenishing it or substituting it with N-acetylcysteine is a great idea. Um, the uh, vitamin E is, a, is an antioxidant as well across the lipid membranes. Works really well apparently with um, mitochondrial uh, uh, mitochondrial redox reactions, and it helps again with alpha lipoic acid. They kind of work in synergy there. Um, the B vitamins, uh, B complex vitamins, specifically thiamine, riboflavin, uh, B6, uh, pyridoxine, um, uh, and fo uh, folinic acid or folate um, are primarily utilized in um, mitochondrial cocktails, although. Uh, Folate and folinic acid are, are an activated form of 5-MTHF, uh, which crosses the blood-brain barrier, is a little bit more limited in utilization to patients who have cerebral folate deficiency, uh, because again, higher doses of folinic acid without a particular need may cause certain other issues, including neurologic situations of um, increased fall risk, um, uh, uh, memory, uh, memory fatigue, memory issues, which I'm currently having some right now, <laughs> um, uh, and other neurological situations. Um, the uh, uh, creatine um, is utilized with uh, certain myopathies because it helps with um, acting as a phosphate buffer for ATP, and that helps patients have a little bit more energy or a little bit more um, ability to take a few extra steps or do a little bit extra work, whereas without it, they would be you know, fatigued uh, a lot quicker. Um, and those are, those are the um, basic 
main components of the mitococktail, um, meaning that you know you, you not necessarily all of them put together at once or all the doses are exactly the same, but those are the primary ones that are looked at by most uh, most doctors, most um, assays when they're looking at muscle biopsies or genetic testing to figure out which ones that would be uh, would be good to be utilized for individual patients. So another question we had was, is being that so many of our supplements are fat-based, how well would the mitococktail work for patients who have an FAOD disorder? And especially if they can't break down the long and very, the long and very long chain fats. Um, so the vitamins are, 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 are fat soluble, meaning they tend to be stored in fat cells in the body. So if you take, for example, um, a, D, E, and K are the, are the, are the main fat-soluble vitamins, although you know, CoQ10 falls into that as a cofactor, et cetera. Um, when you take a certain amount of vitamin D, it circulates in your blood, um, and you utilize what you can utilize. Past that, your body hoards it and stores it in fat cells because it's very lipid-soluble, and we'll, we'll use it over time. Um, fatty acid oxidative disorder, um, it's not, it's not that you necessarily need to metabolize fats in order to be able to process the fat-soluble vitamins, but it's a storage for your body, storage area for your body or storage compartment for it. Um, so I don't know if exactly how, like, if there even would be an impact on patients who can't metabolize it. Um, you can take fatty, solu fat-soluble uh, vitamins and cofactors without a high-fat meal. You can't process it, and that's fine. Um, they're still going to be absorbed. Uh, fairly well because the mucosal membrane is also lined with uh, with cells which have a you know fatty acid external layer uh, just all cells do and then it helps kind of absorb them if it's not an active absorption by your gut um, so I, I don't think you're going to see much of an issue with FAOD and processing those vitamins but uh, or storage of them um, I, I, that's like that's I guess what the question's going for yep we had another patient, um, a Milas patient, wanting to know why and if you've experienced some of the mitophysicians uh, having some resistance still to prescribing the cocktail or trying the cocktail. That I don't, I, I can't speak to, I don't know. Um, there has been evidence of um, certain vitamin cofactors being utilized in Milas. Um, small clinical trials. Um, there are uh, some that are available now on, on uh, clinicaltrial.gov uh, for me last patients. I, I believe I last checked it a few days ago. Um, so there is information out there. I, I don't know why there might be a resistance. It might be the comfort level of or what they've read. Maybe if there's um, clinical information out there that I haven't come across that shows a negative impact. Um, but again, without the standardization of what is in a mitococktail, maybe they're reading about something in general as the MELAS patient and there was negative outcomes. Um, we do know that CoQ10 at certain doses becomes pro-oxidant, for example. Um, I was speaking with that, uh, about that with the mom this morning. Um, just because it works well in one patient doesn't mean another patient with that same dose is gonna work well. It might actually be harmful in another one. Um, so there's no... Um, that, that might be where that's coming from. I, I, I don't know because I haven't run into that, to be honest. 
Yeah, and I, I do think it is all about just staying up to date on so many of the publications that are out there and and having those reference points for their physicians to reach out to, to, to check in with their experiences. We have another patient asking about the timing of when to take their cocktail. She's stated that um, when she started taking the cocktail uh, sort of midday versus in the beginning of the day and finishing it before, like just kind of taking it throughout the day, she's noticed that she has a better uh a better outcome. Do you find that there's a timing difference for patients or is this again, very individualized on how somebody utilizes their cocktail? Most, most dosing seen is twice daily. I have seen it dose three or four times a day. You can spread it out. Absolutely. Um, and again, it depends on how the individual patient is doing. That being said, um, you don't want to, you don't want to push off till too late at night because certain medications like CoQ10 can actually cause um, metabolic wakefulness not a true insomnia from the sense of like it's creating um, disturbances psychologically, but it's, it, it, it creates this energy in, in you and it, you have a, you know, difficulty going to sleep when you're more energetic. Um, the, uh, if you split it up into like three or four times a day, then you're gonna have this kind of con more constant flow of, um, of vitamins and cofactors in your body throughout the day. So it's almost kind of like, instead of having like, two peaks happening at the day of the two times that you dose the medication, you're seeing kind of like these small peaks three or four times a day, which just means that there's more, I mean, it's basic pharmacokinetics without getting into too much detail, but you'll, you're seeing it more of a, of a normal steady state and more of a straight line or whatever versus just these, you know, big gaps. So that would be beneficial to some patients, but again, it depends on each individual's, you know, metabolism. Some patients will see just fine benefit with twice a day dosing. Okay. Um, how do, how do you know your biochemistry and how would that guide your cocktail formula? What is the best way for patients to really capitalize and utilize the, the cocktail to their advantage? Um, I mean, the best way is, you know, talk with your pharmacist, talk with your doctor, your metabolic specialist. I mean, those are the people who are going to have the most information for you. Um, I do have the advantage with, with my biochemistry degree from before. Granted, that didn't necessarily teach me anything about you know, mitochondrial disease or anything like that, but I learned how mitochondrial work. I understood, you know, there's certain pathways. And when I read clinical articles, I have a different, different look at them than say a pharmacist doesn't have that. Um, but it doesn't make me that much better or smarter or anything like that than anybody else. It's just a different training, a different outlook for it. Um, most physicians uh, who end up in um, metabolics will have extensive work in genetics and metabolism. Um, as far as pharmacists, we all have biochemistry training. I just have a little bit more than, than other pharmacists do. So, I mean, if, if you're into something and you're learning something that is unique or, or, or different, and you want to be an expert in it, you're usually going to get more information about it. And the pharmacists who are going to be dealing with mito patients generally tend to read articles and find more information, which they'll, you know, they'll use their, their pharmaceutical knowledge and biochemistry knowledge for that. Um, and this, you know, they're the, you know, between your physician and your, your pharmacist, I think you've got a great resource there for, for to ask questions about uh, metabolics, biochemistry, for what's going on. Yeah, that is the key is to finding a metabolicist who's really willing to dig into your numbers and work with you to, to capitalize on what's available. What um, Judy wants to know what B vitamins are best. And I know, uh, Chad, you and I have talked about 
you know, what if I take a B complex? What if I take a B complex with a whole bunch of other Bs on the side? It's like, what's the best way for our patients to utilize the advantages of vitamin Bs? Sure, sure. So um, the main ones are B1, B2, B6, um, uh, folic acid are, are pretty much the primary ones. B complexes have a lot of other ones in there. They also have biotin. Um, they'll have B3, which can cause flushing. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about B3 after this, because uh, actually there's an article about it. And it's um, kind of interesting information. Um, uh, and all those, all the extra vitamins over there might not be, you know, uh, harmful. And it is recommended with B complex with B50 or uh, mostly instead of a B100 um, to be taken with mito patients because it gives you overall uh, benefit for, for B vitamins because they're used in um, uh, oxidative phosphorylation. They use cofactors. Um, they're used in uh, B6, for example, is used in nerve cells uh, uh, extensively in order to be uh, functional. Uh, the problem does become though with some of them, even though they're water soluble and you can, you know, you pee out the excess and they're not like fat soluble where they build up the toxic levels in the body. If you take too much of certain ones like B6, for example, above uh, three to 600 milligrams, depending on body weight and age, et cetera, you can actually induce the problem that you're trying to fix. If you're trying to deal with tingling and numbness in fingertips and extremities, you're actually going to get that. Um, you know, folic acid, too much folic acid, like I said earlier, was going to cause, you know, uh, memory issues. It can cause fall, increase your fall risk. Um, so, and the, the thing is, if you're taking supplements that, multiple supplements that have multiple ingredients in them, you start building that up and without, you know, writing down the numbers and adding up exactly how much you're taking of each thing, before long, you can overshoot and now you have a problem. And you're like, wait, this metacognitive is not working for me. I'm, I, it's making me worse. And then you stop. But the situation may not be that. It's just that you're overshooting on certain vitamins, and that's kind of a problem. Um, vitamin uh, vitamin B3 actually had a, a big article that was published, uh, it looks like about a year or so ago, um, where it showed a lot of benefit in, in patients. Um, what we know about vitamin B3 is that it's used um, either in its active form, uh, niacinamide, nicotinamide, or, or B3, niacin. Um, it's used in NAD and NADH, which are molecules that are used primarily in uh, oxidative phosphorylation and ATP synthesis. Um, some patients have niacin deficiency. Some people have, some patients have NAD or NAD uh, pH or NADH deficiency. Um, what they showed with, with um, uh, the niacin um, was that they improved the levels of niacin they improve the levels of NADH in, in patients who are deficient in it, which makes perfect sense. Um, the side effects of it, which can be GI upset, uh, extremely dry skin, GI irritation, and then the niacin flush, which is a prostaglandin-mediated uh, situation where any, anything greater than 50 to 100 milligrams of niacin in pretty much everybody um, will cause this like head-to-toe feeling of heat flushing, but basically it's, it's opening up the blood vessels to the local outside effect, uh, outside uh, extremities um, to the skin. And that's what's creating that flushing, that heat feeling. Uh, it's not harmful, it's just very uncomfortable and it can last for 30 minutes to a couple hours depending on the individual. Pre-treating with NSAIDs 30 minutes before helps mitigate that to some extent, but it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. Um, 
And we know a lot about high dose niacin because we've, uh, for many, many years, especially in the late 90s through the 2000s, um, there was this drive for high dose niacin for eight, increasing HDL and lowering triglyceride levels. Um, now that's, you know, uh, not utilized as much because we've realized that HDL, increasing HDL doesn't necessarily reduce cardiovascular risks. Um, but, and there's better ways of going about triglyceride lowering than niacin because you're getting all the flushing, the GI irritation and all the side effects. Um, the study was um, a small study. It only included patients who had progressive, um, progressive external optical ophthalmopedia. I cannot pronounce that to save my life. Um, and there was a particular form of mitochondrial myopathy that exhibited in um, eyelid drooping. Um, it was not a double blind. It was not a placebo controlled. But what they did do was for every one enrolled patient who was symptomatic, um, they included two control patients. This kind of increased the power of the study, which was, you know, it was a good way of going about when you deal with small numbers. Um, doses were increased over four months from 250 milligrams a day up to 750 or 1,000 milligrams a day. Um, the problem was they didn't look at any of the clinical endpoints until starting at four months, which they've already hit their target high dose. And then they follow them for an, for an additional six months after that. Um, so we don't know if lower doses would have been beneficial for these patients or repleted them or what happened. Um, so there's a limitation of that for that study. Um, side effects were seen in all the in all the patients. One patient had a flare-up of his gout. Two of the control patients dropped out. Uh, muscle biopsies were performed um, before and after to confirm genetic testing and uh, for both the controls and for the um, the patients, which is great, and they were able to see what, you know, uh, if, if, the, if they were included properly into the uh, study, et cetera. What they did notice was that they had, uh, in the mitomyopathic patients, there was a decrease in fat deposits around the organs, uh, which is what the worst kind of fat that you can have for some reason, and they, they didn't really explain in the article, mito patients seem to have more, more chance of that. But um, again, which level of mito patients, they didn't really state any, any more information of that. NAD levels minima, uh, normalized um, fat distribution in the um, control patients was not affected around the organ tissues, but their subcutaneous fat was, uh, was decreased. Um, they did notice a decrease in red blood cells and hemoglobin, although they never went below normal levels. Um, they showed improved muscle strength in all of the patients, uh, not the controls, because the controls were already at uh, where, where they were. They didn't really see a difference there. Um, some cellular functionalities did decrease at these high doses over a prolonged period of time. Um, and they also showed there was an increase in mitochondrial proliferation, meaning an increased amount of mitochondria or amount of reproductive growth of mitochondria, but not necessarily in a reduction in the pathogenesis of the mitochondria. They didn't really fix what was going on in the genetic, which makes, again, sense. Um, it's a limited study with limited information for only a limited set, subset of people. Um, and high-dose niacin can have potentially deleterious effects with GI irritation, which can also lead to other nutrient depletion, depletion which they did not cover in this, but that's just from a general standpoint. If you're having a lot of diarrhea, you're moving things through your GI, GI tract, your lining is irritated, you just don't absorb things. And we know that from, you know, just pathogenic issues with diarrhea or, you know, um, alcohol-induced um, uh, GI issues or, or a lot of other uh, disease states. Um, 
it's a great proof of concept, great pilot study. I think it's something that should be looked at more in depth, but it's, it, you know, uh, unless you're under the supervision of a uh, metabolic specialist who's recommending the high doses of B3, uh, I wouldn't recommend higher than like 50 or 100 milligrams a day um, just because you're, gonna, you're running the risk of, you know, deleterious side effects that may not, and you may not benefit there. And again, unless you have niacin depletion, because all the control patients didn't have niacin depletion and not all mitochondrial patients have niacin depletion. Um, so it depends on your individual diagnosis, your individual situation. Doesn't mean just because these patients that were included in the study had were mito patients and were nutrient depleted for niacin that all mito patients are on that same boat. They specifically looked for patients who had that problem and they did reject other mito patients who didn't qualify for their study parameters. So um, what what those you know why specifically those patients were rejected in state, but you know niacin depletion was one of the factors they were looking at. Wow, thank you so much for addressing that because we do get questions weekly about the supplementation with uh, NAC and I always pronounce it wrong, glutathione. glutathione. So I, I appreciate you diving into some of those studies and kind of breaking it down for everybody so that we know where we're at with either adding that or inquiring about it with our medical team to see if that's something that should be part of our cocktail. We have a question on what is the best form of CoQ10? That's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it depends. Um, it depends on a few different factors. It depends on what your metabolic doctor is looking at, uh, is information, is information for, bo for both ubiquinone and ubiquinol. Idebinone, the third isoform of CoQ10, is only really uh, utilized and been shown to be beneficial in patients with certain um, uh, like muscular dystrophy type myopathies. Um, sometimes in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, they've, they've shown some benefit from a uh, neurologic standpoint. Um, in general, it's not recommended for most mito patients. Um, so that leaves us with ubiquinone and ubiquinol. Ubiquinol is the active reduced form of CoQ10. It's the one that's gonna do the antioxidant effects in the body, ubiquinone doesn't. That being said, in your body, there is a constant balance. Your body is constantly converting ubiquinone to ubiquinol, not actively necessarily, but despite it's sitting in the blood and it's sitting in the tissues because of the way that your, your chemistry works in your cells without going into crazy amount of detail and, um, and information with diagrams and stuff because that, that, that gets really complex biochemistry is how that works. Um, ubiquinol when taken orally does convert to ubiquinone in the GI tract to a large extent. Um, ubiquinol is slightly harder for the body to absorb than ubiquinone because it's less fat soluble. Um, it's also more expensive, ubiquinol versus ubiquinone. Um, when it comes in contact with the air, ubiquinol does start transforming to ubiquinone because it starts oxidizing. So taking those factors into account, 
I mean, I'd say that the ubiquinone would be the more prevalent oral dose medication because it's cheaper. It will absorb slightly better. It will still convert in the body to ubiquinol on a natural basis. You know, it's on its own normalized basis. Your body doesn't have to do anything actively to do that. It's still utilized. We have seen patients who utilize ubiquinone and ubiquinol, uh, not together, just separate patients. Um, both do well. So that's not saying that ubiquinol is not a good idea. It works. Some patients and some doctors will say only ubiquinol works. Some patients, some doctors will say only ubiquinone works. So I don't have a particular thing I can point to and say, this is the only one that goes. Um, in the most recent study, ubiquinol is the recommended form of CoQ10 um, because of its redox capabilities. Um, again, you know, individual, individual functionality, individual biochemistry for everybody is going to be different. You can certainly try one, switch to the other, and then see if one has a better effect for you or not. Um, and again, it depends on what your doctor's comfort level is going to be if they're, if they're writing a prescription versus an over-the-counter supplement. So this is a great follow-up question then. Um, so what is about like, what if patients take Epic for Health lipos liposomal CoQ10 versus MitoQ? And I'm not sure what the MitoQ product is. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that off the top of my head. Um, there's no studies. All the over-the-counter supplements are not FDA approved or regulated um, because there are no clinical studies. Nobody can make any claims for them or they're considered medical things. I knew no Epic and some of the other um, uh, manufacturers of, of CoQ10 or Mito products in general or, or supplements, some do do testing on their own to make sure what they have in there is on their label. Not all of them do. So, you know, that's a big difference between items. Um, some actually do their own studies, absorption studies, et cetera. So if there's that information available online, I think Epic might have a few studies on there. I'm just not sure. Um, I wasn't prepared for that. So I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't look anything up like that. Um, no, that's... No, that's fine. Um, so somebody has a question. So if they have a liquid, a bottle of liquid ubiquinol, once it's opened and exposed to air, is it converting to ubiquinone inside the bottle? Um, no, because you're not le you're not leaving an unopened, unsealed or unstoppered bottle open to the air. It, it depends on you know. There's a lot of factors like surface area. So like if you poured it into a bowl, you're gonna have a lot more air interacting with it versus if you close off the top because there's a limited amount of air that's always going to be in there. Um, if you use the bottle in, let's say, 30 days versus leaving it for six months, you're going to see a little, you know, a lot less degradation of anything. And that's true for pretty much any pharmaceutical or any sort of anything. Um, uh, again, these, uh, if these companies have done studies on how their product is stable at any given point, um, then that's why they put certain expiration dates on, on bottles. Um, commercial products, um, they, they do all do studies on that information. Um, there's limitation on, on pretty much any chemical uh, when it's exposed to air over a period of time, but some, some more than others, I guess. But again, it depends on the manufacturer. Okay, so then they, a question that's sort of layering on top of that is, 
Can you explain how those who have mito are not able to absorb nutrients very well? How can they adjust to their compound? That, that always will depend on what's going on. Is the absorption because the gut lining is damaged? Is it because of a you know functional impairment, like some sort of genetic issue, like there's no active transport of certain chemicals? It um, is not, it won't, not every single nutrient will be affected the same way by any individual situation. Um, sometimes when the patients who have like short gut syndrome or they have extremely damaged GI tracts, they have parenteral administration of, of nutrients, of, of food in general. I mean, uh, the, the TPN uh, springs to mind of, of, uh, of, of uh, parenteral feeding. Um, which can include vitamins, it does include some vitamins, but it can include cofactors and other things as well. Um, not everything is available for um, parenteral administration. Um, from an oral standpoint, you know, what ha might happen is that the doses just have to be altered, either higher doses have to be given or doses more frequently through the day to bypass that. Um, I do know that active transport in the GI tract is maxed out at a certain point. Um, so if you over flood it with the, the same nutrient, the GI tract will just be like, okay, well, I'm not doing anything anymore. I'm just gonna let it move on and you just poop it out. Um, if, you, uh, if you mitigate that by giving smaller doses over a prolonged period of time, that changes the absorption pattern, but by how much, like, and it depends on the nutrient and really nobody has any studies or clinical information on that. That's just, again, a theoretical concept based on you know, anatomy and biochemistry. Um, that's gonna depend on what you might wanna discuss with your metabolic doctor or um, you know, even discuss with, if you have a GI physician, if you have GI impairment, what that exactly entails uh, for you specifically. We have a few questions around riboflavin that appears to be one of the B vitamins that's most prescribed. And for some patients, that's the only B vitamin in their cocktail. Do you feel that that's sufficient or should they have a conversation with their doctor about that? Yeah, that's going to be a conversation with their doctor. That's going to depend on their individual profile. Um, there are uh, patients with a peruvic dehydrogenase deficiency or PDD. That's only really treated with, with riboflavin. Um, if that's the primary deficiency that you're facing, you don't really don't face any other issues, then that's going to be the primary thing you're going to want to uh, have the supplement, but that's going to depend again, your metabolic profile and what's going on with, um, uh, uh, with your, with your doctor and, and what, you know, what they wanted to prescribe or comfortable with your diagnosis. Um, Carrie has a question. She said, it seems that her L-carnitine helps to clear her head and memory fog. Is she wrong on that correlation? Is it possibly something else that's helping that? Or is it the L-carnitine? Again, if you have a carotene deficiency, levocarnitine is going to is going to help you with that. Um, that again, that depends on your metabolic profile. Again, everyone's biochemistry is different. Um, it could be the carotene causing that directly. It could also be an artifact of something else. I, I you know, I I wouldn't know unless I you know talk with your doctor and get more information from that. Okay. Do you see many mito patients being prescribed or using D ribose? No. Um, no. I know that that is something that's been recommended in the past. It's not something that, uh, that's been, um, 
in the last two publications for the more recommended items for, uh, for MITO. So this is a popular question. We have it in a few different areas popping up. People who want to be prepared and put their meds together for a week or two weeks at a time, how do you recommend dealing with some of the powdered pills that um, tend to decompensate once they hit air, like the levocarnitine tends to start to break down inside the pill boxes. Do you have any recommendations or thoughts on how our patients can uh, be prepared and put together their meds more than a few days at a time? So those medications are called, it's called hygroscopicity or they have, they have a high hygroscopic profile. Um, I know you want to say high drugs, that means water, but it's like high grow. Um, that means that they're drawing moisture from the air into themselves and liquefying. Um, the only way to avoid that is to keep them in the special blister packs. That's why they're, that's why levocarnitine tablets are in those individual blister packs when you get them from the pharmacy. Um, as far as over the counter stuff, I don't know, but that's what it is for the prescription items. Um, they're, they're individual, each pill is individual blister pack and shouldn't be open until time of use or right around when it's supposed to be used. I know that's inconvenient, but if you're not going to get any therapy from the medication that you're taking, you know, I, I would, you know, the convenience versus therapy benefit is what I would weigh. Which one, which one do you look for is more beneficial? I think from my side, therapy is more beneficial than, than the convenience at that individual time. I mean, maybe I can perhaps something or, or keep the, cut the um, cards up. So individual pills in the blister pack and then put those in the pill minders. That works. I mean, because you're not exposing it to the air, um, but I wouldn't pop them out of any self-sealed um, blister packs or anything. Well, that is that's good to know. I know I'm guilty of doing that with my kids. Sometimes I need to put three, four days together at a time, and then I'm always curious about what day three is going to look like with the levocarnitine coming out of their blister pack. So that was a good reminder. I'm going to stop doing that ASAP. Is there a test we can ask our doctor for that would show any of our deficiencies so we know what would be the most beneficial ingredients for our cocktail? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't really deal with testing. Um, so I know there's a lot of different things out there from genetic tests to nutrition depletion tests specifically and to um, muscle biopsies. I don't know which one is better for which individual situation. That's definitely something to discuss with your doctor. Okay. Um, we have a couple of uh, more questions from some of our FAOD patients, and they want to know um, if there are metabolic doctors that don't feel that the mito cocktail would help FAOD patients. Do you know of a resources that we could use to read up and help prepare our doctors to contemplate using or trying the mito cocktail for an FAOD patient? Um, I don't know anything specifically. Um, I don't know. I know Mito Action has a lot of great resources and information um, available online for, for metabolics. Um, they you know that they have the um, Parik et al. and the, the other uh, article published in 2018 about the mitochondrial cocktail. I don't know, um, Stephanie, if you have the most recent one, from the, the 2020 publication posted yep. as well. Okay. So, I mean, that, that's another great resource. That's a great article. I mean, um, they're, they're printable, they're, they're, or at least, you know, citable, so that way you can give them to your doctor to have them read. Um, I know there's nothing specifically in FAOD um, listed in those, but, um, I mean, there's communications with the authors of the articles in there, too, so they can reach out and 
know, perhaps those doctors will have more information for them. They'll feel comfortable speaking peer to peer with somebody who's got different experience. Yeah, I like that. That the peer-to-peer -peer seems to be a, a great way to go and bring some influence to the conversation. Another question we have is: um, patients who are diagnosed clinically with a complex three or four, there tends to be some discussion on the best way for them to get oxygenated oxygenation to their cells. Do you have any thoughts on this and how that pertains to the cocktail? No, um, nothing that we have worked with or whatever deals with oxygenation of anything, unfortunately. I think that's more like an HBOT uh, question or, you know, physical therapy or um, a, a doctor's question. I'm sorry. Okay. We have someone, um, I have CPT2, and I feel as I get older, I'm having more episodes of muscle cramps. Are there any specific supplements that you can recommend? Um. I'd say probably electrolytes, uh, primarily, um, again, depending on cardiac issues or whatever, you want to be careful with that. So if you're having any cardiac issues, you know, discuss with your cardiologist before doing anything that has magnesium or salt or potassium or anything like that, because that'll have a massive impact. Even if you don't, you still should still, still discuss with your doctors. So they know because they can guide you and coach you on, on the amount to take for that specific thing. Um, I mean, magnesium in general is really excellent cramping, um, if it's because you're having a lot of lactic acid buildup, um, uh, the B vitamins are going to help with the, uh, more streamlined um, sugar glyco uh, glycolysis uh, uh, steps. If it's a uh, muscle fatigue issue, creatine uh, may be beneficial. Again, discuss any of that with your doctor because you're going to want to make sure that they're adjusting other things if necessary. Creatine specifically, if you take it as a supplement, um, will um, elevate your serum uh, creatinine, which if you take a blood test for it, it's going to look like your kidneys are having issues, even though you, you, know, you just have an excess amount because you're taking it as an oral supplement. You have to stop that before you do any blood work a few days ahead of time. If you want to discuss that with your doctor, if you're on that, um, if you're going to do that, go, go on that or whatever, because you don't want to falsely elevate. And if you do have kidney issues, you don't want to take creatine because you're going to have difficulty filtering or utilizing it and you can create other issues. So those are always, you know, uh, it's always strongly recommended to discuss, especially with your metabolic doctor um, or whoever's overseeing your metabolic care about that. Those are probably the, the supplements I would, I would say would be more key in that. So we have a lot of conversations frequently regarding magnesium and all of the different formularies of magnesium that are out there. How does somebody know which magnesium citrate, magnesium glyconate? Mag I mean, there's just so many. What, like, how do you know which version to take? So the most well-absorbed are like the, are the magnesium glycinate or the chelated with the ones with amino acids. Um, they have shown that. Mag chloride um, has more of a GI um, side effect of diarrhea. Um, it's used as a laxative. So avoiding that would probably be key because the higher the doses you're going to have is the more, and you have a lower absorption of magnesium in that situation. Um, that's really, you know, everything else falls kind of in between there. Um, mag oxide is the most primarily used supplement. Um, for magnesium deficiency, um, it's been around for forever and it's most well known and well studied, well tolerated. Um, so that's always a you know a good go-to um, for magnesium. Um, but what I've seen 
from everything I read is the was chelated like mac glycinate is probably the best bet. That's usually our go-to is always to try to find a chelated version of it. Um, that seems to be the most tolerated for, for my mito kid. Um, we have somebody who says a family who has a magnesium deficiency and they can tell when more or less is needed just due to GI activity. Some days someone will need more, sometimes it'll be less. What, what causes that variation and what's happening within the body with mitochondrial dysfunction to cause that? So it might not be specifically mitochondrial dysfunction. It can just be general biochemistry. Not everybody, uh, mitochondrial disease, as far as I've read, um, does have some electrolyte imbalance, but it's not its primary issue. It's mostly an energy production issue. Everybody filters and utilizes uh, magnesium differently. Um, what can cause cardiac complications or GI disturbances in one patient won't cause anything to the other patient. We won't even see a benefit or, or anything for it. Um, it's just a fine balance because, um, it, and it might not be that magnesium alone is depleted. Um, you can discuss with the doctor, there might be other issues like potassium or sodium because the body kind of utilizes them. I don't want to say interchangeably because that's not true at all, but if the balance is off of the electrolytes, you're going to see effects of one or the other a little bit more pronounced versus kind of being more like steady or smooth. Um, because the body still has to maintain certain contractility and conductivity of muscle tissue, nerve cell, uh, nerve response, cellular functionality, uh, et cetera. So it might just not be that it's, it's uh, you know, it might be that the kidney is over-filtering or not enough because of the diet of the other, uh, of the other electrolytes, you know, so that's definitely something to discuss with the doctor. Yeah, that would be a good question to have with your doctor, especially looking at those electrolytes, because keeping those in balance is key. Um, we have someone asking, does, would all compounding pharmacies be able to make the cocktail for feeding tube preparation? Mm, no, not necessarily, because it depends on what the compounding pharmacy may specialize in, what they access or knowledge they base that they have. Um, most compounding pharmacies are willing to learn and do things, but like, let's say they're hormone specialty only pharmacy, you're not going to get any, you know, anywhere with, with the pharmacy that way because they're not going to want to do them. They, they specialize in one thing, for example. Um, calling the pharmacy, finding out what they're comfortable with or what they're experienced with um, in a local area uh, will give you some benefit or they, they may know who does it. Um, for example, there's some things that we, uh, we don't work with, you know, so we don't do any sterile medication that we know who in our area does do sterile medication and we refer patients there. Um, so, you know, speaking with your local compounding pharmacy or somebody in at least your, your general area, we'll be able to point you to somebody else who may work with, uh, mitochondrial, mitochondrial cocktails. Short of going out to good old Google, how would somebody find a compounding pharmacy to try to establish a relationship with? I know a lot of our families just reach out to the usual corner pharmacy, but I think getting to a compounding pharmacy is key for people. How do they find one? And like you said, how do they make sure it's not just a hormone-based compounding pharmacy? Sure. So, um, I mean, if you don't use Google, uh, then you can call actually your local corner pharmacy. They, again, like they'll get scripts for compounds. They're like, we don't do this. They, all, they will know somebody who might work with something along those lines. So they'll at least know a compounding pharmacy in the area and then they, that pharmacy may direct you somewhere else. 
Um, when you do find a compounding pharmacy, um, you know, then you know, ask them about the mito specialty. You know, if they have any experience with mito specifically, I mean, um, or if they have, uh, they know anybody who does work within the area. Um, uh, there's always, you know, uh, pharmacy is a small world. Uh, we always know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good point. Um, so, having said that, and asking, this is always on everybody's question. Are compounding services ever covered under insurance plans or Medicare and Medicaid policies? Sometimes. Um, it depends where you're at. Medicare itself will not cover any compounded medications made from bulk drug substances, which is what the mitococktail is made out of. We buy bulk drug chemicals. Even though they're sourced from FDA-approved wholesalers, even though the wholesalers source it from FDA-approved places or manufacturers, the drug itself that we make in the end is not FDA approved. So Medicare won't cover anything that's not FDA approved. It's just built into the bylaws of the congressional level. Um, as far as Medicaid, um, that's gonna depend on the state to state, what they cover, what's part of their thing. Same thing with private insurance. It varies from different parts of the country. You could have two patients with the exact same coverage of, let's say, you know, um, uh, pharmacy benefits manager X, and they have two different plans inside of that pharmacy benefit managing. So they might have different levels of coverage. Um, you don't know till we try. I mean, we've had patients who they'll have one compound that's covered, another one that's not covered. Um, it just depends on the individual insurance. And what what uh, you know, prior authorizations are usually the first step in getting compounds covered. I'd say probably about ninety percent of the time at this point. Okay. Wow. Well, Ted, I, I'm just getting so many great, uh, thank you so much for this information. People are really enjoying this conversation. So I do appreciate you taking time away from your very busy daily life there at Acton. Um, and again, you, you have been such a great partner for MitoAction throughout the years. I am going to make sure that our people have access to contacting your group if they have other questions about getting their medications in the Basically, you guys are in the New England area, correct? Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We have licenses in the New England states and a few other states outside of that. It all, again, it depends on which state you reside and what our licensure is. Okay. So definitely reach out. You can always just reach out back to MitoAction at info at mitoaction.org and ask us to help you um, find some resources for compounding. And if you have any more questions, please get them to us. And I will try to uh, get on Ted's calendar again for him and I to go through a brief Q&A and I'll get written answers and send them back out. But Ted, I do appreciate your time today. This was really helpful. I, again, I'm just getting flooded with, thank you so much. This was so helpful. I learned a lot today. So again, this is always a hot topic and I appreciate your expertise on this. No problem. Glad I can help. You know, uh, thank you everybody for joining us. And, you know, uh, I'm happy to follow through with any questions. If you want to send them to MitoAction or um, direct to me, I know my contact info is with MitoAction as well. I'm happy to help out wherever I can. Sometimes the answer is I don't know and I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, but you know, I'll try to help where I can. Uh, you know, thank you again for having me. You are quite welcome. Again, everybody have a great weekend and uh, we'll look forward to seeing everyone online. Thank you.